Okay, we are, um, by the way, my name is Derek. If I haven't met you, I would love to. Uh, this is, of course, the season of Advent. We are in the second week now of Advent, and during Advent, we've been taking kind of a, an Advent theme each week and looking at one word that kind of describes that theme. So last week, we talked about hope. We talked about the biblical concept of hope and talked about what, it, what is hope and what do we hope in and what is it. Today, we're going to actually look at peace, the concept of peace, especially as we understand it through the Old Testament. Uh, if you are familiar, maybe some of you even heard the song when it came out, the John Lennon song, Imagine, calls us to imagine a world in which there is peace, and there is peace specifically because there is the absence of things like religion, right? Right? That's what he says, imagine there's no God, imagine there's no heaven, imagine there's no religion, and if you imagine those things well, that will lead you to a world in which there is no more conflict, there is no more strife, there is peace. And this song, it's an amazing song, a beautiful melody, and it's wonderfully written, and it got lots of traction, of course, in the 60s because there was lots of conflict, and people were yearning for just a time where we could have some peace in this world. And so maybe this is the answer, that if we rid ourselves of all religion, if we rid ourselves even of all kind of spirituality, that we will find peace. Has that happened? I don't think it has. In fact, Clay Robinson just sent me an article this week uh, with, that was really just about this, is that as secularization in our world has increased, guess what else has increased? Conflict, strife, fragmentation. We are in a time in which we are more secularized now than we have been in a long time, but we are not more peaceful. In fact, if the events of the last couple of years have shown us anything, it's that we are, we are more disunified, we are more fractured, we are more fragmented than we ever have been. So what is it that brings us peace? That's really what we're going to talk about today. And before we dive in, let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, God of peace, Will you be present with us by the power of your spirit so that we might open your word and hear what you have to say to us? Show us, Lord, what this means for us to be a people of peace centered around a prince of peace, that we might proclaim peace to the world. Lord, show us your peace today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here's what we're going to talk about today is what peace is, kind of uh, with three sections. We're going to first talk about uh, the principle of peace. What is just this concept of peace? And then we'll talk about the prince of peace. And then we'll talk about the people of peace. And do I need to do anything different here to my, to my mic? Is it me? Is it my jacket? All right. Let's... Did I do any better? All right, here we go. All right, so once again, the principle of peace, the prince of peace, and the people of peace. Principle, we'll start with that. Uh, you know, so oftentimes when we think about peace, we think about the absence of something. But peace, biblically speaking, is not absence, but actually the presence of something else. See, we think peace and we think, okay, peace is the absence of maybe noise, right? We say, I need a little peace and quiet, 
So peace is the absence of noise and everything that's going on that's just kind of driving me crazy. Or maybe peace is the absence of people. (laughs) If I asked you all to close your eyes and just imagine the most peaceful place in the world, my guess is you would be the only person there. Oftentimes we kind of think, you know what, peace means nobody else is around because other people drive me crazy. Or probably the most prominent way that we think about peace is that it's the absence of conflict. Peace is the absence of conflict. If we just want some peace in our house, we want there to not be the kind of conflict and strife, relational difficulty that we're experiencing. When we talk about peace between nations, we talk about the absence of war. We want to see peace in the Middle East, meaning we want people to stop fighting. We want wars to stop. We want conflict to stop. And in the Bible, the idea of peace does include actually the absence of conflict, but it includes so much more. It includes actually the presence of other things. I'm just going to set this here, and I'm going to try my best to stand still today. That's probably not going to happen. So shalom is the Old Testament word that is used most often for peace. When we look in the Old Testament and you see in your English Bibles the word peace, so oftentimes, in fact, actually almost every time, that word is the Hebrew word shalom. And the concept of shalom includes, again, that absence of conflict, but it includes a lot more as well. Listen to what else it includes throughout the Bible. Shalom is also the presence of wellness, or safety. Listen to these passages. Genesis 37 says this. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well, shalom, if it's well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. He's asking, is everything okay? Are they well? Are they shalom? Do they have shalom? Genesis 43, something similar. He inquired about their welfare, shalom, and said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? How is his shalom? How is his wellness? In 2 Samuel 11, when David is talking to Uriah, David says this, when Uriah came to David, David asked how Joab was doing, that's shalom, and how the people were doing, shalom again, and how the war was going, shalom. Interesting irony, of course, what David is about to do to Uriah and his wife. But so oftentimes this word shalom, it's talking about wellness or safety. How is everybody doing, right? We would say, how's your mom and them? That's shalom, okay? That's the Texan way of saying, how's your shalom? That's so much of what it is. But shalom also includes the idea of fullness, not just wellness or safety or personal well-being, but fullness. Deuteronomy 25 says, a full shalom, and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have. He's talking about just measurements and just dealings between people. Ruth 2, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full, a shalom, reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So oftentimes in the Old Testament, shalom is also used to talk about fullness, Things that are filled up, if a cup is completely full of water, it is completed and it's shalom, it is full. Also, though, shalom means the presence of wholeness or completeness. In Deuteronomy 27, we hear this, you shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut 
shalom, uncut stones, and you shall not offer burnt offerings on it to the, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord. So the uncut stone is a full stone. It is complete. That's also actually spoken of for, for a wall that's not missing any bricks or stones. It's full. It's shalom. It's complete. Second Chronicles 8 says, Thus was accomplished all the work of Solomon from the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid until it was finished. So the house of the Lord was completed. Shalom. Everything was done. It was whole. It was complete. So in the Bible, we have this full understanding of shalom, that it is wellness and safety, that it is fullness, that it is completeness, that it is wholeness. Tim Keller uses this example, which I think is helpful. Think about if you had a table and a bunch of yarn or string or thread, and you just threw a bunch of thread onto that table. Well, all it would really be is just a big old pile of thread, right? But if that thread is actually woven together, if it is woven tightly under and uh, over each other, if it is brought together, then it becomes something a lot more than a combination of threads. And it's the intricate weaving together of all of these things that is this concept of shalom, that it means really fullness and wholeness. It means universal flourishing. I love the way actually one author says it. He says, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creations, all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. That is shalom. Let me read it again. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Shalom is the way things ought to be. Shalom is the way that things are supposed to be. They are whole, complete, well, absent of conflict, yes, but present with the glory of God and with redemptive purpose. That's the principle of peace. That is the concept of shalom in the Old Testament. So let's turn now to the prince of peace, the person in whom we find this peace exhibited most. Listen again to Isaiah 9. Actually, Victor and Allison read this earlier. It's worth listening to again. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as the joy of the harvest, and they are glad when you divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian." For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Prince of Peace, in the story of the Bible, that's the Messiah, the anointed one, the one, the king who comes in the line of David. He actually does three really amazing things around this concept of peace. And the first is that he is the one who perfectly embodies it. He embodies peace. Remember, if our concept of peace is the way that things are supposed to be, then it's Jesus, actually, who embodies that concept most perfectly. 
We read in the New Testament, Jesus called the new Adam. That's because he is the Adam that Adam should have been. You could also say that Jesus is the new Israel, meaning that he is not only the, the individual, the Israelite, but also the nation as the way that it should have been. We read that Jesus is the one in the line of David who is before David. He is the one who is going to be the perfect king. In fact, if you listen to that idea, that prince of peace there in Isaiah, as Isaiah is prophesying about the Messiah, it's actually peace that will identify the Messiah. He is the prince, that's probably better translated king, is a royal word that really carries with it enormous connection, enormous authority. He is the king of peace. He's the one in whom peace is found most perfectly. And so with Jesus, we have the wholeness, the completion, the perfection of what it means to be human, what it means to be one of God's people, what it means to have the purpose of God's people, what it means even to lead God's people. The kings were supposed to do this for God's people. They were supposed to do this for the nation of Israel. They were supposed to lead them in justice and righteousness and establish peace, but they failed over and over. Jesus comes as the full embodiment of that. So first of all, he embodies peace. Second of all, he actually accomplishes peace. Did you hear the language even in Isaiah of the conquering that the Messiah will do? He will overthrow the rod of the oppressor. He will break the rod of the oppressor. He will actually set the people free. And of course, we know that that is not simply a political oppressor, a national oppressor, but it is the oppression of sin and death the reign under which we all live. And Jesus, the Messiah, has come to break that oppression. He has come actually to proclaim peace. In fact, we find that in Romans 5. This is what Paul says is, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on at the end of Romans to say this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So peace is not the absence of conflict here, is it? In fact, it's the presence of a lot of conflict, but it's conflict on our behalf. It's conflict that Jesus, the Messiah, the King, comes and he wins and he reigns and he overthrows sin and death and he gives us peace with God. He accomplishes peace for us. And we have access to that peace with God through faith in Christ. And then thirdly, he not only embodies peace and accomplishes peace, but he promotes peace. His kingdom is a kingdom of peace forever. That's what Isaiah says in chapter 9. That his reign and his peace will last forever. That life under the rule of the prince of peace is supposed to be the way that it's supposed to be. The king will reign and his kingdom will include a peaceable kingdom. His kingdom will is the way that it's supposed to be. So that's the Prince of Peace. That's the one in whom we trust and hope, the one who embodies peace perfectly, the one who actually accomplishes peace for us, and the one who promotes peace. So what do we do? How do we respond to that? And that's really the third point here. It's the people of peace. That is us. God's people, through the Old Testament and the New Testament, in Israel and in the church today, were always meant to be a people of peace led by the Prince of Peace, following him and promoting peace in all things. So how do we do that? How do we promote peace? I, I love that 
prayer, the famous prayer by Francis of Assisi, where he simply says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. That's a good prayer, helpful prayer for us, to ask the Lord to make us instruments of his peace. That's what being a member of the kingdom of God is, is to be an instrument of that king of peace in his kingdom, shalom-building kingdom in this world. So here's just a few things. This is not exhaustive by any means, but here's just a few things to keep in mind. For one, we can participate in systemic shalom building. We can participate in things that are actually building peace, building shalom in the world. That prayer of Francis of Assisi goes on like this, where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. So where are the places in your life where you can participate in the systemic shalom building of God's kingdom? There are plenty of places, plenty of organizations that you can join in that are doing wonderful work in this. Organizations like African Renewal Ministries, where a couple of our congregants are working, who are promoting shalom, particularly in Uganda, where there is deep poverty and hunger, where there is systemic hunger and poverty. How can we come and establish even uh, some small bits of functioning into into poorly functioning places? Or International Justice Mission doing the same thing throughout the world to free, usually young women, from forced slavery. That is participating in the systemic building of shalom in the world. Or even here in New Braunfels, organizations like Options for Life, where we can promote the beauty of life and the systemic shalom building of life in our city. Or the New Braunfels Housing Partners, where we can help uh, house people who are chronically underhoused or homeless. Or the New Braunfels Food Bank, where we can participate in the building of shalom with those who have needs. Or maybe it's just filling up a stocking full of toys so that a kid can have some toys to open on Christmas morning who otherwise wouldn't. So that's the first thing. How do we participate in the systemic shalom building throughout this world? That is one way that we can be those who promote the Prince of Peace and be the people of peace. But I would say it also happens just even here in our body. How do we do that in our church? How how are we those who promote shalom at hope? Listen to what Ephesians 4 says. The Apostle Paul writes, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God is calling His people to live together in peace. And again, friends, that that is a lot more than simply the absence of conflict. Because you can get rid of conflict pretty easily by just sweeping it under the rug, can't you? Or just leaving, or just deciding not to pay attention to it or to the people causing it. But did you see actually what Paul was saying actually creates peace here? It's things like humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, maintaining unity. Sometimes that's just something really simple. 
like taking a meal to someone's house who's just had a baby or who's sick or who's mourning, to sit next to somebody who's sad and say, tell me what's going on and let me just sit and listen for a while, to just be with people who need time and friends to repent to each other. Again, if we, if we flee from conflict, we actually won't ever be able to, to engage in repentance and restoration. We have to lean into the conflict so oftentimes and lean into Jesus and, his pre- and the presence of redemption there. And then finally, this is just to, to remember that God can give his peace even in the times of great difficulty for us. This is what Jesus tells his disciples in John 16 when he's about to leave. He says this, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. And then listen to what he says afterwards. In the world you will have tribulation, trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. See, God says that we can have peace even in the midst of really difficult times. We actually can have peace even when our lives seem to be falling apart on the outside. We can have peace even when when we turn on the news every night, we see that things seem to be getting worse. We can have peace even though it seems like the relationships in our lives are the hardest they've ever been. When family members aren't talking to each other, when parents are terminally ill, when our friends, we haven't seen them or their children for five, ten years we can still have peace because we actually know God is doing something in the world. He is accomplishing his peace. I don't know if you have ever seen uh, or know about the, uh, the, the Sagrada Familia Cathedral in Barcelona. Uh, you've probably seen a picture of it. You would recognize that it. it is enormous and it looks like a giant sandcastle. It is, it is a glorious structure and one of really the world's kind of most prominent architectural uh, buildings. And it was begun actually in 1882. The architect Antoni Gaudi started this in 1882. Well, Gaudi died in 1926. And the, the building was about 25% complete when he died. It's still not finished. They're hoping, actually, that the cathedral might be finished by 2030, a hundred years after the death of the architect and 150 years after they started building it. And if you were to go into this wonderful cathedral, which I've never had the opportunity to do, but my guess is you would feel two things pretty immensely. You would go in and you would see, oh, wow, it's not finished There's still dust and dirt and construction stuff happening everywhere. There's still yellow tape up, and there are places I can't go because it's still under construction, and there are people in here with hard hats, and things are still being built. But you would also look up, and you would see something glorious, something wonderful. You would see that there is being built something incredible. And one of the things that I love about this story is that after Gaudi died, other architects just came in, and they completed his work. Other people came in and they took up the cause that they had been given and they started to build and they started to craft and they started to design. And you have this incredible structure that one day will be so magnificent. And you can see its magnificence now, but it's still under construction. That is a great picture, I think, of the shalom making that Jesus is doing currently. We can see it. 
We get a glimpse of it in his word. We get a picture of what the end is to look like, but it's still under construction. We still have to breathe the dusty air every now and then. So what's our job in the meantime? It's simply to pick up the part that God has given us, to take part in the building of shalom so that we might see this wonderful cathedral being built one day, that we might rejoice and worship in it. May God do that for us even today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God of peace, thank you for sending your son for us, that he might be our peace, that he might reconcile us to God. We pray, Lord, that you would move our hearts toward him, that our faith would be in him completely. And Lord, having done so, that you would even send us out to promote peace, that we would be a people who promote peace in this world, that we might see that incredible picture of the glory that is to come. And we might even take up a hammer and a chisel and get to work in building it, knowing that we will rejoice in the work that you are doing. We pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen.